Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Bitcoin rules okay and solitons rule the waves. But first up, here's the news. Medical nanobots. At the Mina and Everard Goodman Faculty of Life Sciences and Institute of Nanotechnology and Advanced Materials at the Bar Ilan University in Israel, Dr. Ido Bashley's team has built nanobots out of DNA folded like origami. The nanobots can recognise 12 different types of cancer. DNA can compute numbers, recognise molecular targets, perform work like a motor, act like an enzyme, so why not combine all those functions into a tiny robot. The team expect to move from animal testing to human trials this year. A man dying of late-stage leukaemia will be injected with nanorobots. Based on the results of the animal trials, the nanorobots are expected to remove his cancer in a month. Dr. Bachelet has had success in repairing spinal cords in tissue cultures and expects to get similar success in animals within a few years and then start human trials. Dr. Bachelet hopes in the future his nanorobots can cure his daughter of a leg disease that currently requires frequent surgery. The researchers designed the structure of the nanorobots using open-source software called CADNANO, developed by Sean Douglas, a biophysicist at Harvard's Weiss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering. The barrel-shaped devices, each about 35 nanometers in diameter, contain sites on the inside for attaching payload molecules and at least two positions on the outside for attaching aptamers. Short nucleotide strands with special sequences for recognizing molecules on the target cell. Once both aptamers have found their target, they spring open the device to release the payload, like a combination lock. 150 trillion nanorobots are injected per treatment. Drugs that would be too harmful if taken by pill or injection can be given by nanorobots in tiny doses that are delivered precisely where they're needed and nowhere else. The nanorobots carry the medicine and only release the dose when they detect the cancer cells. Alternatively, the nanobots could detect how many similar nanobots are close by and only release their medicine when they are above or below a pre-programmed count. When they reach the area of a wound, they can link up to become a bridge over the wound and secrete growth factors to encourage healing. Surgery would be performed by putting the programmable nanoparticles into saline and injecting them into the body to seek out and remove sick cells and grow new cells and perform other medical work. The cancer-killing little robots will be pre-programmed, running on autopilot. We've waited a long time for nanorobots to become a reality. Perhaps 2015 is the year they start becoming therapy.
You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Jason Williams is co-founder of the Bitcoin Sydney Meetup, a member of the Bitcoin Association of Australia and a co-founder of BitPOS, Australia's premier Bitcoin merchant services gateway. I spoke to him at the Metropolitan Hotel near Circular Quay, a pub that accepts payment by Bitcoin. I began by asking him to give a quick explanation of what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is pretty much money for the internet. It's like the evolution of paper money to electronic money, like writing letters is to sending email. And how did you get into Bitcoin? I, uh, I discovered Bitcoin in 2010 through uh, a mate and left it for a, a couple of years, checked in every, every six months or so. And then there's a whole bunch of headlines around 2012, around how Bitcoin was being used. And I did a lot of research into that and realized that there's a whole bunch of buyers and sellers coming together across the internet. And they had this fantastic marketplace and, and it was working. And, and it was just something I needed to be a part of. So were you one of the lucky people who got in early and made huge amounts of money when Bitcoin took off? I am not one of the lucky people. I am one of the lucky people who got in early. I didn't. I knew about it, but I didn't mine it or make a huge amount of money out of it. I'm lucky in the sense that I, uh, I was one of the early people in Australia to put my hand up and say, let's make Bitcoin work here. You mentioned two things there. So you're part of an organisation, Bitcoin Point of Sale, you were saying? So I'm a co-founder of BitPos, which is a, a Bitcoin point of sale system. We, what we do is we enable brick and mortar and also online merchants to accept Bitcoin as payment and then receive Aussie dollars in remittance at the, well, the next day. Uh, our merchants, we've got over 100 merchants in Australia already. We've signed up the first pub in Australia to accept Bitcoins, the first, first fitness center in Australia. We've got pubs all around, or pubs and clubs and, and shops all around Australia accepting Bitcoin and, and, and online as well. Is this one of the pubs? <laughs> the Metropolitan Hotel is one of the pubs, yes. Because I'd seen online mention of the Woolpack Hotel. Uh, so we've got, not the Woolpack, the first pub in Australia was the Fitzroy Hotel in Woolmaloo and uh, they came on in September 2013. And Gary, the, the owner of the pub, is just this fantastic guy. And uh, I, I love to, when I have, whenever I have an afternoon meeting, I always say, shall we go to the pub? And that's a nice thing to do. Should people look at Bitcoin as an investment, as lots of people do, or more as just a way of buying and selling things? The simple answer to that is yes. Bitcoin is, what, what Bitcoin is depends a lot on the context in which it's used. So you can buy it. And, and store it and use it as a speculative investment vehicle or you can buy it and, and spend it like uh, for a, a beer or a nice meal or in Tasmania you could go to the pet store for example and uh, buy all your pet supplies if you wanted to do that. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a nice easy, easy thing to use either online or in real life. Is it risky? Is it risky if people put real money into Bitcoin are they at risk that it's all going to crash because it's all a big bubble, as some people try to say, and they're going to lose their money? So, so you've said a couple of things there. You've, you've talked about real money, and uh, in, in our view, Bitcoin is actually real money, and traditional Australian dollars are, is like traditional money. 
So when people are talking about writing letters, that's the kind of old way of communicating. And now we're, we're, we're sending emails and our emails are getting to mum and dad and our friends really, really quickly. Same with Bitcoin. Bitcoin, you can go and you can send, I could send you a Bitcoin, God forbid, and uh, you would have that in the same time as I would send it to my friends overseas and the same cost. So is it risky, I guess, is the next part of that. It depends on your definition of risk and and how you want to use Bitcoin. So if you want to use Bitcoin as a speculative investment vehicle, it yes, inve- all investments, whether or not they're Bitcoin, gold, sheep, fleece, whatever, they all come with risks. And, and yes, Bitcoin does come with risks. Bitcoin is, is traditionally quite volatile, I guess, in the market. And that volatility will change with use and liquidity. In, as liquidity enters the market, the volatility will decrease. So, you know, can I buy a beer now and uh, with my Bitcoins? Yes. And will that beer value change in the next five minutes? Yes. Do I care? No, because I want the beer and the change in price in the next five minutes is probably going to be plus or minus just a few cents. So it just doesn't matter. And is Bitcoin just the first of these new cryptocurrencies to come along? Is it necessarily the definitive one? Should people expect that it will go away and something better will take its place? Bitcoin is the first time cryptocurrencies have been been invented, I suppose. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, they're called alts in the Bitcoin community, alternative currencies. So, you know, to name a couple, Doge, Dogecoin, Litecoin, Peercoin, Namecoin, Feathercoin, Barbecuecoin, etc., etc. Bitcoin, out of all the cryptocurrency transactions, Bitcoin makes up over 99% of all transactions in volume and value, I believe. And so will Bitcoin be overrun by something else? Maybe, sure. And if, if that was the case, that would be awesome because the, the next cryptocurrency to come along that would actually take over something like Bitcoin would be unbelievably better. Now, from a mass market perspective, is that likely? Not really, or at least not in my opinion, because there are some technical differences with all the, all the different alts, but there's no mass market differentiator that would, that would say to my mum and dad, hey, you should use Feathercoin or Barbecuecoin or Peercoin over Bitcoin. There's just, there's just nothing at this point in time, at least. And are you mining Bitcoins as well as trading them? I, uh, I did buy a miner and uh, I paid 20 Bitcoins for it at the time. And I wish I didn't, because while those 20 bitcoins, while that miner actually netted me back the the money, the Australian dollar equivalent that I spent, it will it didn't net me back the bitcoins, and I wish I had the bitcoins. So I have mined, I have played with it. It is kind of fun to be a part of that. But these days, bitcoin mining is is an industrial activity. It's a it's a highly commercial activity that requires millions of dollars to to do. So if people wanted to get started in use, in Bitcoin as something to buy and sell with, how would you recommend they get started? If you're in Sydney, you'd probably come along to... In fact, if you're any in any of the major capitals, uh, you would probably go along to a meetup and just talk to some people. Don't I mean, you can get your feet wet by buying $10 or $20 or whatever and just, just have a play with it, see how it works. You're not going to lose a lot out of that. Other than that, there are a ton of places online in Australia and overseas that you can actually buy Bitcoins with. One of the most uh, prominent places in Australia is CoinJar. There's also Independent Reserve. There's uh, BitTrade Australia. And there's, there's a whole bunch of different places where you can get started and just buy a, 
you know, whatever you like in Bitcoins, five, ten, fifteen dollars, twenty, fifty, hundred, whatever. In Australia at least, is there any legislation or government policies about tax or anything else to do with Bitcoin? The, uh, the Australian Tax Office came out after consulting industry, which was really, really nice, and talked about the tax implications for Bitcoin. And they came out with the, the idea... So to, to, to wind it back a little bit, the, the Australian Tax Office doesn't make the legislation. What they do is they interpret the current law and apply that. So their interpretation of the current GST Act is that Bitcoin is a, akin to a barter transaction which attracts 10% GST. So what that means in effect, if you're not using a, a payment processor like ours, is that the merchant will add, will have to effectively add 20% to a transaction to make it viable. Now if a merchant's using a, a payment processor, then the payment processor takes care of all that essentially. And so transactions are no different to any other transactions. And if people want to look for you and the meetup online, where should they look? So there's a so in Sydney we do uh, we're on meetup.com and we meet at the Metropolitan Hotel every Wednesday. In the broader community, I guess the Bitcoin Association of Australia is a great place to start and get in touch with us and we can advise and help and educate and uh, and give you all the information that you need. Is there anything you'd like to add? Bitcoin rules okay. Jason, thank you very much. Thank you, it's a pleasure. That was Bitcoin businessman Jason Williams. You can find the Bitcoin Association of Australia at www.bitcoin.asn.au and the Bitcoin Sydney Meetup at meetup.com slash bitcoinsyd. Next up, John August with Solitons. Waves in water may not seem like much, but over a hundred years ago, John Scott Russell observed a solitary wave in a canal around Edinburgh. At first, nobody believed him, and elements of the scientific establishment turned their backs on him, though later he was vindicated. This heated controversy is something we nowadays know little about, but it was Russell's observation which led to the current-day theory of solitons. John August delves into history to explain what happened. What are solitons? One definition is that they are a self-reinforcing solitary wave that maintains its shape. One example is a tsunami, but we have much smaller solitons in canals. In saying soliton, we are paying homage to particles like electrons and protons. We have solitons, a wave which in some ways behaves like a particle. You can have stationary solitons. There's a stable pattern of dislocations or even a pattern of spins which can be used to store information. I've looked into this on a previous episode of Diffusion. These solitons don't move, but the thing in common seems to be that they derive from a self-reinforcing pattern. That pattern can be in water, in dislocations in a crystal, or even in magnetic spins. But the first soliton to be observed as a soliton was observed in 1834 by engineer John Scott Russell. Alexander Filipov states that it probably occurred near the Hermiston Experimental Station on the Union Canal in Scotland, six miles from the centre of Edinburgh. Russell spoke of a wave of translation and described it as follows. I was observing the motion of a boat which was rapidly drawn along a narrow channel by a pair of horses when the boat suddenly stopped, not so the mass of water in the channel which it had just put in motion. 
It accumulated round the prow of the vessel in a state of violent agitation, then, suddenly leaving it behind, rolled forward with great velocity, assuming the form of a large solitary elevation, a rounded, smooth and well-defined heap of water, which continued its course along the channel, apparently without change of form or diminution of speed. I followed it on horseback and overtook it, still rolling on at the rate of some eight or nine miles an hour, preserving its original figure some thirty feet long and a foot to a foot and a half in height. Its height gradually diminished, and after a chase of one or more miles, I lost it in the windings of the channel. Such, in the month of August 1834, with my first chance interview with that singular and beautiful phenomenon which I have called the wave of translation." a name which it now generally bears, which I have since found to be an important element in almost every case of fluid resistance, and ascertained to be of the type of the great moving elevation of the sea, which, with the regularity of a planet, ascends our rivers and rolls along our shores. To study minutely this phenomenon with a view to determining accurately its nature and laws, I have adopted other more convenient modes of producing it than that which I have just described, and have employed various methods of observation. A description of these will probably assist me in conveying a just conception of the nature of this wave. By modern standards, these waves of translation are not perfect solitons because their character changes if they collide, but I think they're pretty impressive regardless. I think they're really cool. At the time, they were dismissed by scientists because it did not fit in with the then existing linear theories of water. George Biddle Eyrie, director of the Greenwich Observatory, developed a powerful theory of water waves, though it was a linear theory and could not be expected to explain non-linear phenomenon. Nevertheless, he, th he asserted that no long wave in a canal can preserve its shape and argued against all the observations Russell made. But Eyrie did have similar form in other areas, Filipov writes. In 1845 to 1846, the dramatic events related to the discovery of the planet Neptune aroused much controversial and hot discussion among scientists, as well as in wider circles of European educated society. Airy's role in these events was rather dubious, and he was strongly criticised in England. Airy was one of the first to notice irregularities in the movement of the planet Uranus. However, when John Adams, a young mathematician, gave him the results of his own computations which explain these irregularities as the influence of an unknown planet, Airy made no moves to check the prediction. Only when it became known that the French astronomer Leveria had reached the same conclusion did Airy give orders to look for this planet. But it was too late. German astronomers, who were not as sceptical as Airy, had found the planet Neptune. This story caused some damage to Airy's scientific reputation. However, Airy was a very consistent conservator. It was also he who had the dubious honour of killing Babbage's analytical engine project. In reply to Prime Minister Peel's request, he characterised the project as absolutely useless. George Stokes, of the Navier-Stokes equation, also asserted that the wave of translation cannot exist. Heraclitus, who lived around 500 BCE, said, If you do not expect the unexpected, you will not find it. For it is too hard to be sought out, and difficult. Russell lives till 1882, but was fortunate in seeing his observations vindicated. In 1871, the French scientist Joseph de Bossonesque showed that the wave could exist and calculated its approximate velocity, something confirmed by Raleigh in 1876 and Saint-Venant after Russell's death in 1885. 
But this particular wave reached its crest in 1895 when the Dutch scientist Johannes Korteweg and his student Gustav de Vries showed that Airy and Stokes were incorrect and formulated a new equation, the so-called KDV equation, which describes Russell's soliton with mathematical finesse. So this flawed institution of science, inheriting the flaws of some of its most notable custodians, was nevertheless able to reach within itself and atone for its sins. It finally recognised Russell for his work and corrected a long-standing injustice. But it took way, way too long. Still, one of the few things our contemporary society does well is generate large numbers of frustrated people. And as you look into history, it does seem that injustices are generated with much more regularity than are fair and equitable situations. That was John August, introducing us to some of the history behind John Scott Russell and his wave of translation. In the next instalment, John August will tell us more about the physics behind the phenomenon. And finally, it's three-minute thesis time. Rowan Limbury brings us a tale of two gametes. Our next presenter is Rowan Limbury. Rowan is in the first year of his PhD in the Center for Evolutionary Biology within the School of Animal Biology. His supervisors are Professor Jonathan Evans and Associate Professor Jason Kennington. The title of Rowan's thesis is Sexual Selection on Gametes, Sperm-Egg Interactions in the Marine Broadcast Spawner Mytilus Galloprovincialis. Nobody knows if I got that right, do they, except him. <laughs> um, and the t- t- title of his three-minute thesis is A Tale of Two Gametes. What role do sperm and eggs play in reproductive success? We all know sex makes life complicated. Boys often find themselves fighting over girls, while girls often have to choose a preferred mate among many suitors. But what if I told you that these stressful behaviours can be for nothing? That our sperm or eggs can have the final say in who we reproduce with? This is often the case throughout the animal kingdom, when a female's eggs come into contact with sperm from more than one male. In my model species, the blue mussel, sex means broadcast spawning, simply releasing sperm and eggs into the ocean where they must find each other and fertilise. This means that instead of competition among the males themselves for mates, there is competition among their sperm. I will work out whose sperm wins using a trick of muscle biology. In mussels, parts of the sperm that can be coloured with a green fluorescent dye get passed into the egg at fertilisation. By colouring a particular male's sperm and allowing it to compete with non-coloured sperm from other males, I will work out his competitive success by counting fertilised eggs that are coloured. This will let me determine what makes a successful sperm. Are they fast swimmers, slow swimmers, curvy swimmers? Maybe they have long tails or big heads. But it's not just about what the boys can do. Females can often influence these competitions using mechanisms that let them choose sperm from the males they prefer. Now, in many animals, eggs release chemicals that attract sperm towards them, useful for broadcast spawners. This is known as sperm chemotaxis. And in these mussels, it's recently been found that a male's sperm will swim toward the chemical halo of eggs from some females, but not others. This coloring technique will allow me to determine whether this lets the females choose sperm from particular males when they're in competition with sperm from other males. But why should we care about sex in mussels? 
Well, it's not just muscles where sperm and eggs can determine who reproduces with whom. In fact, broadcast spawning is the ancestral animal mating strategy, and the sperm egg processes that are important in these systems have been passed down the generations to many of today's animals. For example, humans aren't broadcast spawners, fortunately. <laughs> but sperm chemotaxis does occur in humans. Until now, however, we've had no knowledge in any species of the role it might play in mate choice. Using this unique model system to directly investigate these roles will provide the basis for greatly improving our understanding of compatibility and fertility of different partners in many animals, including us. Thank you. That was Rowan Limbury. You can find out more about the Three Minute Thesis competition at www.3minutethesis.org. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me emails so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook. It's got to be good for something. And rate us on iTunes. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, 2 NVR in Nambucca Valley, 2 X in Canberra, and 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. If you're listening on another radio station, please send email to science at diffusionradio.com and let me know where you're hearing us. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and please review Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, videos and photos about this week's stories. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.